Hi, and welcome to the Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast for your everyday and well-being needs. I'm Amy from The Wellness Strategy, and I'm here to bring you a podcast that is going to help you understand what this big complex idea of well-being is. We know it's a very much needed space to focus on whether it's for your own needs or that in the workplace, but we also know it's complex, it's heavy, it's made up of lots of different elements. It looks different from person to person, which is why within this podcast, we are going to dive deep into uncovering some mistruths, misconceptions, and just random ideas around wellbeing. This may mean that you have to listen to me ramble, and at times we'll have on some fabulous guests, but overall, this is about checking in with yourself. What do you believe about wellbeing? What do you need? What are you proactively doing? What could you do differently? And how are we working together on both an individual and collective level to improve the well-being of ourselves and others within the workplace it's big it's deep it's complex but it's also amazing when we do this work both individually and together so hang in there grab a cuppa pop your headphones in and go for a walk and let's dive into today's episode good morning wonderful people how are you happy wednesday if you're tuning in today or whatever day it is for you or time of the day, just hope it's a good one. So I want to talk to you today about something I talk about often. And if you follow me on social media, you'll see it a lot. I did a post about it this week and I want to unpack it. I want to talk about why. I want to give you my real insights and thoughts into the difference between the perception of what we think well-being is and how we build culture in workplaces and what it actually looks like and the key things I've identified and my thinking and reasoning behind that. Because as you've heard me say many a time, the well-being weeks, the cancelled staff meetings, the fruit bowls or the morning teas don't actually address the things that are impacting well-being. And they're I'm reminded of this saying, which is, and I can't remember who said it, but it's something along the lines of we need to stop pulling people out of the stream and start looking at where they fall in in the first place. And for me, I think within the space of workplace well-being, educator and teacher well-being, we need to stop applying Band-Aids and start asking, why are people falling over and hurting themselves in the first place? Like, What is causing that? Because There are many things that are happening that are perhaps Band-Aid solutions to people feeling overwhelmed, tired, stressed, burnt out, teachers leaving the profession that don't tackle the core issues. Now, I love a morning tea as much as the next person. I love a yoga class. I teach yoga as well. I love it when a meeting is cancelled and perhaps I've got other things on my to-do list I can focus on. And those things really matter, you know, team bonding days that we do at schools or in workplaces, having opportunities just to connect on a personal level. Those things are really important to us. They are mood boosters so they can increase positive emotion and put us in a good state. Although I do always wonder why we have morning teas that are perhaps more on the unhealthy side when we know that impacts our cognitive ability. And so we go and eat unnecessarily uh, or unnecessary unnecessarily unnecessary we go and eat like a lot of junk food yeah and then we go back into our classrooms and try and teach if you're a teacher and it just isn't the same because your brain isn't working your body's digesting it's a lot so that does puzzle me but apart from that you know we need these things because we need to connect on a social level with our peers we need to provide opportunities for people to build those personal relationships and the research tells us that the more we're able to connect on a personal level the more we're We work better together, the more engaged we are with our colleagues, the more productive we can be, the more 
positive and productive our relationships are to support us to do the work we do. And that's the thing with wellbeing strategies. They have to support us to work better. Now, I'm not sure looking around and noticing staff are tired and cancelling a meeting actually helps us to work better. Because at what point do we say, gosh, why is everyone so tired? Can we do something differently? It's so common in schools as a workplace to say, well, staff are tired because it's report writing week or it's the start of the year or uh, it's end of year concert, whatever it might be. And I understand that, yes, those things impact to it, but is there another conversation we could be having, another level to dive deeper in, which is, is there anything we can do about this? Is there perhaps some alternative measures we should put in place around report writing time, around the start of the year, around concert time, when we know it's more stressful so that teachers and educators don't feel the impact as significantly? Or is it where where we actually need to take a step back and say, hey, is the process we're using here effective and efficient as well? Multiple conversations we should be having that are different to let's just put on a morning tea. Now, I know these things happen with the best of intentions. And I recently heard a comment that made me cringe a little bit. And it was something along the lines of when leaders do tokenistic well-being things like morning teas or yoga, it's not good enough and they shouldn't bother at all. And I thought, you know what? That's actually not true because these strategies are perhaps all our school leaders at the moment know, or perhaps your leader knows, because for a long time, that was our perception and understanding of what well-being is. And for some, it is not because of their own fault, but because of the lack of and miss education out there that exists. And it's never anyone's fault for not, not necessarily, not, let me rephrase that. It's never anyone's intent to do harm with these strategies that are perhaps viewed as tokenistic. It's just that the capacity, the knowledge, the ability to do something different doesn't exist. And so what I want to talk about today are different ways to to support and enhance well-being that also says, you know what, it's not about doing more. It's about setting up workplaces so they thrive through structures, through expectations, through supporting personal and professional boundaries and well-being strategies so that people feel valued, understood and appreciated and so that our work happens more easily. No leader in any workplace is sitting around making these decisions based on, yeah, how can we do something that's really going to negatively impact the well-being of staff? Or how can we just do a tokenistic thing so it's appreciated by some, but we know most will see through it. No one is intentionally making a decision with that thought. So if at times it's interpreted that way, we have to take a step back and say, well, hang on, these people are doing the best they can. They're really trying. It's just that we don't know what else to do. I speak to many school leaders and and many organisations, leaders in workplaces, and one conversation we have openly is that wellbeing is new. Workplace wellbeing is a new concept. We're really in this transition phase where we're starting to appreciate and understand the employer as a person and not someone who just does stuff to help us have better business revenue or have better impact in the workplace to do the task. We're realising that, hey, how people are mentally, emotionally, physically, socially, in all aspects of well-being impacts their ability to work productively, to engage, to perform well, to have an ability to grow personally and professionally, to be able to work to their strengths. Like We know those things are really essential. And so for a long time, that hasn't been the understanding of how we get the best out of our employees and how and how best it is we work. We have perhaps had a perception that we create 
a clear cutoff between work and home and work is one space and home life is another and they shouldn't overlap or your let's use the term and I personally don't like it but let's say soft skills personal skills skills that might be seen as more feminine aren't valued in the workplace and now we understand that they are and they're really significant to creating thriving workplaces and so this whole idea of well, what is workplace well-being and how do we do it well in a workplace is I'm, I'm going to say it's new. It's really, really new. There's not a lot out there. There are things around certain elements of it that are have been growing for some time. You know, Brene Brown's work in vulnerability. We've got work around building emotional intelligence and, and emotional capacity and understanding. We have started to play with the ideas of resilience, especially in a school at a student level, but then how do we apply that to ourselves? We hear things like growth mindset or gratitude. And these are things that contribute to well-being, but perhaps aren't understood as a as something we should implement in a systemic way, in a structural way, and as part of culture to influence the workplaces we work in. And so that's what I want to talk through. That was a long introduction, but it's really important that often I get asked what's my viewpoint and I want you to be able to listen to this and think oh yeah actually I know where Amy's coming from I know what her viewpoint is because it's really important that when you consider this that this message resonates with you and it might not you might want to go to someone else who works in the well-being space and I appreciate that you've got to find the right people for you and so this podcast is really about me sharing with you where I do stand because you want to know that the person you're connecting with has the same perception or understanding as you or expands your perception and understanding and makes you think, actually, you know what, there's something in that. So I really want to make sure that that is coming through strongly and clearly that you're understanding that. And part of today's podcast is going to help with that as well. So I want to start by saying there is a perception that well-being in workplaces is based around things like morning tea, team building activities, meeting free week, yoga classes, fruit bowls, those types of activities and doing. It's funny, I'm talking with my hands and doing quotation marks, marks and stuff like with my fingers. I mean, you can't see me, but it's there. It, it's seen as those things. And for a long time, as I mentioned, that was enough. That was it. And they, we need those. Please don't ever stop doing those. We need those little things in workplaces. It's so nice to, to go, oh, there's morning tea today. How awesome. Or, oh, someone's put some fruit in the fruit bowl. I love that. Or, yeah, I really do appreciate that meeting being cancelled so I can have some more time to write reports. Like those things do matter. But we've got to start looking more widely, more broadly, more deeply at what are the things we do ongoing, long-term, sustainably that also support well-being. It's not the little things that unfortunately help tackle the big things, but we can tackle the big things in little ways. I want to talk through what it is that you can consider what you're doing or not doing in your workplace that might actually help to make those sustainable changes, that might actually help to change the way you view well-being whether it is at a leadership level whether it's at a whole staff level whether it's within your teams so you can start to do more long-term sustainable meaningful work alongside the morning teas so let's take a look at what some of those things are the first one i want to address is a key aspect that contributes to well-being and culture is we need to find ways to work productively so often we hear things like, I don't have enough time, I don't have enough energy, there's too many things to do, I'm too overwhelmed. And this can be because we're just not working productively. 
we're simply not working in a way that's efficient, effective, or with ease. And productivity is not about doing things fast. It is about those three E's. It's about saying, well, is what I'm doing effective? Am I efficient in the systems and strategies I'm using? And can I do it with ease? Is it energetically sustainable for, for me, meaning I could do it over and over and over? Or am I depleted in energy by the time I get to the end of it and think, oh my God, I hope I never have to do that again? Or I'm really dreading the next time that shows up. Or now I have to go back to, and start at the beginning because it's a loop perhaps we're doing or a process or a cycle and then saying, I just don't know how much longer I can do it. That's not productive. That's not efficient or effective or done with ease. And if that is a feeling or a conversation or a murmur among staff, it is something to pay attention to and address. It also really relates to the second point around working cohesively and collaboratively in teams. And this, I think, is perhaps one of the most underestimated pieces to pay attention to when you're considering workplace well-being and culture because how we work together directly influences our personal and professional well-being and I often now spend times in schools working with teams discussing how do you work what are your systems around planning what are your systems around assessment how do you share the load what does that look like how do you efficiently use your planning time and it's interesting that many teachers and teaching teams are left to their own devices. They don't have someone leading that planning time or leading that structure, and they haven't considered how to maximize that time. So if you're thinking, well, actually, we just kind of wing it, which is what often what a lot of people tell me, we just wing it, we just do the things that are on our to-do list, we just are kind of like looking and thinking, well, what's come up this week we need to do? And you don't have a system of saying, well, in our planning and prep time we do this, Tuesdays we dedicate time to this, Wednesday afternoons we dedicate time to this, I have this period off here, which is when I really look at uh, assessments coming up. If you're not using a, a system around how you manage time and time with your team in order to support productivity, I can tell you now you're wasting time. You're, ha you're increasing the amount of decisions you make individually and as a team. So you're putting yourself into unnecessary decision fatigue. You're not working efficiently and you're not building in those sustainable habits or structures to allow you to work well. Because when that planning time uh, rolls around when you're thinking well how do we work in teams are we collaborating or are we a team are we cohesive have we spent time building our shared values have we talked about what our personal and professional boundaries are and how we support that with each other if you haven't done those things you're not working effectively efficiently or with ease you're not being productive there are definitely things you can do there the next one is around, you know, do we engage in meaningful and purposeful work? And this links to how we work in teams and being productive. The work we have with the work we do for the most part should be meaningful and purposeful. So if you feel like there are things that you're doing and you're like, I'm not sure why I do this, it's normally for one of two reasons. One, it's not valid anymore and your school, the school or the education approaches or your pedagogy has outgrown that's that that type of work or that system or whatever it is you might be doing, but you haven't actually reviewed it. So sometimes we hold on to things and we think, well, we have to do it because it's been the way we've always done it and we don't reflect on some of those things as we evolve and so we just keep doing it. And the other reason why we uh, are doing it is because we we need to, it actually doesn't serve us and we need to let it go. So one of the re I feel like that wasn't clear. Let me say that again. One of the two of the reasons that we engage in me meaningful tasks is because it's at a school level. We're doing them because we're told we have to or we're doing it because we think we should in our own work and we haven't actually stopped to think, is this meaningful and purposeful? Now, some tasks are going to be 
laborious, maybe time consuming, maybe we just don't like doing them, but they are meaningful and purposeful. So if you take, for example, sometimes we don't like marking student work because it does take time, it does take effort, and it feels like it builds up really quickly, but it is meaningful and purposeful if you're targeted in ensuring that you give students feedback they can respond to and it influences impacts learning. Spending hours ticking and stamping something doesn't add value to student learning. That is not meaningful and purposeful. Targeted feedback is. There is a difference. It's about asking, am I doing this in a meaningful and purposeful way or am I doing it just because I think it needs to be done and I want to get it done? I also then want to move into how we look at, so they were some, they were the three pieces around how we work in terms of teams, tasks, productivity, the meaningful and purposeful work we engage in. But I want to touch on now the people in our workplace and how we support them in terms of their own personal well-being, but professional well-being and the culture we build to support that. So the first one is around we have to support staff to grow and feel fulfilled. This is significant for well-being. It's a part of our psychological well-being. You know, if we don't feel like we're growing, then sometimes we don't have meaning or purpose or fulfillment. So we have to be growing. Now, I recently was a question around the idea of growth fatigue and what I'm going to say about that is it's not always about doing something new sometimes we need to do something new pause let that new learning integrate and this is often the piece that is missed we we go on a pd we have a new program we do it a year passes by two years passes by and we think oh it's not working I'm going to change it now often that's because we haven't let that process that system that new piece of pedagogy, that new training, that PD, integrate or we're not doing it properly. It is amazing how many schools I speak to and they rattle off 10 different programs they're doing or 10 different approaches, none of which are actually perhaps being done by the book, so to speak, as they're designed, as the research says, consistently, collaboratively uh, or in a way that's understood by everyone. So It's not just about growing and doing more professional development. It's actually about reflecting on is what we're doing allowing us to grow professionally? Have we integrated that? Do we give staff time to reflect on it? And are we really meaningful in the decisions we're making about how we're going to grow next? One of the things I often see too is people on a staff are all doing their own individual professional development, which we want to foster because we want people to have autonomy around their learning. But what that means that is in classrooms, students are doing varied things. People have a varied um, a varied understanding or a varied vision, not consistent vision, about where the school needs to head and that can create inconsistencies and impacts how people work in teams. So it's, yes, allow people to have autonomy over professional learning, but think, What are the consistent things we're doing at a school level so that people know it's transparent, they don't feel like they're chopping and changing, and we allow time for those things to integrate. I then want to move on to that, what that can also help foster, and the other and two things that underpin this, which is around we have to create psychological safe work environments. Now, psychological safe, I know, is a bit of a a hot topic buzzword at the moment, too. What that means is people feel safe when they come to work. People feel like they can speak up and express themselves without feeling like they're going to be judged, belittled, criticised, questioned in a way that makes them feel like they're not enough. They're not going to be shamed for something. That is not a safe work environment when those behaviours, attributes or or, um, traits occur 
And we have to be acutely aware of, is that happening because of perhaps a perceived divide between leadership team and teaching staff, which can happen? Is it happening in teaching teams? Is there maybe a specific staff member who behaves like this? And these are scenarios I've I've come across. We have to, as a TED Talk, I, I might put in the show notes, and it's also on my LinkedIn around, and I can't remember the lady who talks, who does this, but she talks about incivility. Are we being incivil to people? What does that look like? And she gives some great examples. And I think that's, that's, people don't feel psychologically safe if they feel like their workplace is not civil, if they feel like they can't speak up, if, if they're going to be mocked, if someone's going to enroll their eyes at them, if someone's going to say something like that's stupid, which we would never allow from our students. But in the workplace, in a school environment, it does happen. And so we have to be prepared to tackle some of that and say, you know, what is it? Why? And I'm going to do something in a little while too around how we there's an individual and collective role in building psychological safety in the workplace. But we have to start thinking, oh, you know, is this because of something that's actually happened? Is this because perhaps I'm not confident to speak up? Is it because I'm telling myself if I speak up, someone might make fun of me, but I have no evidence of that? You know, evidence is key. I was listening again to a wonderful podcast about data and how we need to be looking at whether it's real evidence or perceived evidence, especially around these personal uh, these personal well-being factors. It's just something interesting to perhaps ponder and know that a psychological safe environment doesn't mean necessarily that we're creating a space where we're not avoiding difficult conversations. I think sometimes that's the misconception too. If, I, if my workplace is psychologically safe, then we wouldn't have conflict and we know you can have healthy conflict or I wouldn't be challenged. We have to be challenged. We ha- have to have environments where we can do that. Now, the difference is a psychological safe work environment allows that to happen and people still feel safe and comfortable. So this is a deeper one and I'll be talking and elaborating on that over the next few weeks, so stay tuned. But it, I just want to draw your attention to some of that because I think it's being said a lot alongside the idea of well-being and again perhaps that we don't have the right education around that and the last ones I want to talk around are supporting personal and professional well-being of staff and respecting people's personal and professional boundaries so first of all we have to start to support people's well-being we have to know what our own well-being aspects are and what it looks like And then we have to know what that is about others. So one of the other things I often do in schools is I sit with teams to talk to them about what are your personal and professional well-being areas of growth, things you want to maintain, things you want to let go of that aligns with personal and professional boundaries. And what's really interesting is, and this often comes up in the work I do, is that when we talk about well-being and we say, well, I want people to respect my personal and professional boundaries and I want people to support my well-being and I say, great what is that what does it look like often the answer is well I'm not sure specifically like I say name me a thing give me an example the most common example is emails and I have a viewpoint on that which I won't get into but what what's interesting is that we want these things but we don't know what they are so how can someone support you if you can't language and name it if you haven't communicated it or if you're unsure yourself So one of the things I do is I take teams through this process of being able to elicit their personal and professional well-being areas of focus 
to get them to think about what that might be, to articulate it, to share with one another, and then they can build collective support through collective accountability, collective action, and collective commitment on those things. It's a really powerful and wonderful process. And what comes out of that is the ability to respect people's personal and professional boundaries because we know what they are. And often we don't know what they are, so how do we know how to respect them? A huge part of it is communicating that. So that's what I wanted to cover with you today, some key areas around what we might perceive well-being to look like, but why we need to maintain those things alongside, well, how do we really get into tackling well-being and culture with some tangible examples? So I'm going to leave that because otherwise I'll just never stop talking. (laughs) And I mean, I'm more than happy to talk about it. So if you do need anything, please reach out. And if you're thinking, well, what does this look like for me as someone who's perhaps on a well-being committee, really interested about it or as a leader? flick me an email, send me a message, let's talk, because I think it's within these conversations that we start to think, oh, actually, that's the changes we can make rather than thinking, I don't know what to do, so here are some hot chips. Have a wonderful day, evening, night, wherever you are. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. And remember, if you are looking to elevate your personal well-being, Elevate is open, so come on down and join that, 12 months, 12 modules, 12 mentoring sessions with me, absolutely amazing we've had some people join over the last month who have started this journey but you can jump in at any time so remember that that is always open and always an option and it is a place for high performers people who are looking to elevate their level of well-being elevate their level of working elevate their level of life just being able to bring more fulfillment meaning and purpose into what they do but also feeling energized calm relaxed and having the time and space we need that's it lovely people i'll see you somewhere soon take care and as always if you need anything please get in touch okay so it's not quite the end we couldn't wrap this up without giving a shout out to our socials so please make sure you head over to facebook and follow us at the wellness strategy with amy green or join our exclusive facebook group the wellness strategy collective you can find us on insta at underscore the wellness strategy and also head to our website to find out more about us and subscribe to our weekly newsletter at www.thewellnessstrategy.com.au so much gratitude see you somewhere soon let's do this again